You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. I just realized something as I cracked open a uh, energizing midnight grape kickstart and uh, took a quick drink before I started this. Hang on, let's see if we can still hear this. No, not really. It kind of uh, gave this little fizz thing and I, you could hear it in my headphones. I'm like, ah, that's pretty cool. I'm here at the office late at night, kind of came into the studio because we're expecting, I, first of all, I apologize. Want to get this podcast out on Thursday? We usually do them on Thursday. Uh, I have been Mr. Insane Traveler, and so have not been around at all. And uh, when I am around, I'm also now Mr. Office Manager, and so I have this, you know, organization to manage now. And uh, wow, am I finding that to be? A challenge I haven't experienced back since I ran my uh, my planning company um, back over a decade ago, and uh, you know we had uh, f- five offices and thirteen staff, and 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 that was like a full time gig just managing. And uh, wow, strong towns is starting to uh, creep up there too. More on that in a second. Um, but I want to get in here tonight and do this because we are. It is what April twelfth today. Uh, you know, and I, I live in Minnesota and so, you know, we expect, I'm not going to complain about winter. I mean, that would be kind of futile to complain about winter. I, I, I happen to like winter, so I'm, I'm not going to complain about it anyway, but there, there gets to be a point, you know, we're playing baseball here. I mean, I, I watched the twins play tonight and beat the Chicago White Sox. They're expecting up to almost two feet of snow tomorrow down by Minneapolis, um, it looks like it might go a little bit north of them now. It might only wind up to be like 8 to 10 inches, but still, <laughs> April 13th, 8 to 10 inches of snow. That That's insane. That's crazy. Um, and it's not crazy. I'm, I'm sure there's historical, uh, you know, historical precedent for this, but it just, I mean, there gets to be a point where you're like, come on, come on already. And I know we're not the only part of the country that's having weird weather this year. Um, my uh, petite softball team, my uh, my eight to ten year old girls, are antsy to get out there and start practicing. Uh, we still, I got home from Thompsonville, Michigan, uh, last night, and I mean, we still got snow throughout the entire. You, you can see underneath the one tree, the big tree in the front yard, where the snow is a, a little thinner. Um, there's a part of it where you can see the the lawn, the grass. I mean, it's brown, like there's nothing growing. Um, but, uh, otherwise everything is covered in feet of snow. I mean, not just like covered with snow. It's, it's, it's deep snow. Uh, so tomorrow we're supposed to get here. Uh, I've seen reports of an inch and a half of rain. Uh, so I guess if it's, if it's warm, we'll get rain, uh, down to like, I saw at one point, like 12 inches of snow. I think that like the outside range now is like six, um, We'll see. I, I'm, I'm guessing it's going to be rain because it looks like we're going to get warm. But even if it's like rain, it's going to be that freezy, slushy, nasty stuff. So I might just stay home tomorrow and uh, not walk into the office. And what the heck? I mean, I can do that, right? Uh, I mentioned traveling. Uh, I got back from Thompsonville, Michigan this week, which is uh, you fly into Grand Rapids and then you drive north. Uh, it was very near Traverse City. In fact, we had a meetup in Traverse City, last year's strongest town. I drove past Muskegon, which is this year's strongest town. So yay, way to represent Michigan. And uh, had a good time. Um, I wanted to share this one with you because uh, this was a group of city and town managers. And I'm going to be doing some more of that this year. I don't think we're ready to announce a, a big one for this fall. Um, but if you uh, get where this is going, you might be able to guess where I'm going to be uh, at this fall, uh, what group I'm going to be speaking in front of. But this is a group of city and, and town managers in, uh, in Michigan. And I got to tell you, um, sometimes you know, it feels like this movement is accelerating. Um, like we, you know, we just reaching so many people and every place I go, you know, people have heard of strong towns are talking about strong towns. They're figuring out how to implement some of this stuff. They're, they're trying different things. 
Um, and then you get these pockets of people where like, yeah, some people have heard of this, but they were just, I mean, I gave them the curbside chat. They were blown away. Um, you can see it in their faces. Uh, the, the kind of, uh, you know, they, they kind of go through the, the stages of grief as you watch them. Um, the first is a little bit of like skepticism and then there's some, uh, panic and then kind of awe and then, uh, you know, you, you kind of build them back up then like, okay, I, you know, there's hope I can do this. Um, I did a follow-up session, a three hour session the following day. <laughs> the the woman at the hotel uh said so you're a speaker and i'm like yeah and she goes oh i i can't do public speaking she said do you have to, how long do you have to talk and i'm like i got a three-hour session <laughs> she almost fainted <laughs> so we did three hours and uh lots of discussion lots of q a it was fantastic it was great and uh you know i get energized by this and i think people there get energized by it and it just, it, it reinforces to me that even though I look back at where we were and see where we are today and I'm just floored and astounded by it, uh, boy, we have a long ways to go, you know, and, and we have so many more people to reach. It's just, it's just incredible. And, uh, you know, we're doing it. I mean, we're getting out there. We're making it happen here. I, I put a list of the places I'm going uh, before now and uh, the end of May. So I'm going to be in Akron. Uh, Ohio. I'm heading out to Pennsylvania. I'm going to be in Wichita. I'm going to be in Chattanooga. I'm going to be in Peoria. I'm going to Savannah for CNU. And then I'm going to Latvia. Uh, I got invited to speak in, in Latvia. And uh, it was one of those things where I'm like, no, I'm not going to do it. I mean, that's that seems kind of crazy. Uh, and then the more I thought about it, the more I looked at it, and, and people just kind of encouraged me. They said, yeah, you know, go do it. Go do it. Uh, this will be fun. So I, I'm kind of doing this one more for me than for, for maybe building the movement. Um, but who knows? I mean, there's going to be some fun people there, and uh, I'll get to share some ideas and, and certainly learn some stuff. And uh, so that'll be cool too. So that's, uh, you know, that's the travel schedule. And if you listening are anywhere near any of those places and want to be part of them, just go to strongtowns.org, and uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole list there, uh, all the details on the events page, and, and you can figure out um, uh, you know, all that's going on. And if you want to stay in touch, you know, sign up for email from us and uh, we'll let you know when we're in your area. I mean, that's something we do regularly. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm going to pause here and, you know, before I get into the, the topic today and uh, I'm, I'm just going to, I was going to say like, I just want to say thank you. Um, it's not a member drive or anything. <laughs> You know, I'm not coming to you asking for money or asking you to become a member or any of those things. Um, I just want to step back and say thanks for a second. We're, we're, uh, we're meeting this week and, and chatting about some things here. And we're actually looking at hiring uh, two people, um, one which would be a full-time uh, position and then one which would be a, a very part-time uh, position. And, and it's, it, it's amazing because we're feeling this tension uh, to fill these positions because we have the the work that needs to be done. And we actually have stuff that I feel a sense of urgency about uh, with, you know, this movement, with this uh, Strong Towns and, and all the stuff that we're doing. I feel this urgency to get this position filled um, because I, I think it's critical for us to continue building this movement. And of course, you know, we're running a nonprofit. Anytime you want to do something this like this, you've got to readjust the budget for the year, figure out where the money's going to come from, figure out where the money's going to come from next year. Uh, how, you know, how is this going to work in the system that we've created, which is largely member-based uh, in terms of our, our funding. And, you know, so you, you look at this and, and you kind of go through this tension of, you know, how are we going to make this work? And you're, you're banging your head against the wall and you're, you're trying to figure out, you know, how do we get to the next step? And uh, one of our board members just reminded me, uh, he said, you know, remember, <laughs> remember th three years ago when it was just you, you know, remember, rem remember back uh, <laughs> when like we, if, if, if I would have said, you know, we're going to have seven staff members in three years, you would have said, wow, that will solve every problem we have. <laughs> Cause it would, it, it did. I mean, it did solve like every problem we had at that time. Every, every challenge that we had, um, you know, back in 2014, 2015, we have solved, we have addressed, 
and we've addressed because of you, you know, because you've gone and, and become a member and uh, signed up to support us. And, and that has allowed us to address like challenge after challenge after challenge. It's fascinating because, you know, obviously there's no end to the, the challenges. I mean, we have, we have not uh, met our mission of having a, a million people who care about strong towns, getting our message in front of, you know, everybody in America who's going to make a decision about uh, the future of a city or influence a decision about the future of a city, which, you know, really, if you're living and moving to a place and buying a house, you're, you know, you're part of the decision-making process of what makes a city great. Uh, you know, we want to get our message in front of everybody so that our conversation becomes the default. And, you know, we're going to continue to run into challenges and they're challenges of success, right? Like we get to the next plateau and then we say, okay, we're here to get to the next step. We've got to knock down these three things, right? Um, so these are good problems to have. I mean, these are, these are great problems to have, great challenges to have. But uh, yeah, I was just reminded this week to uh, not be so hard on myself, uh, not, not uh, maybe push so hard all the time, and just to have a little bit of gratitude. Um, and so I want to share that with you. I just want to say thanks, because uh, I, I am happy. I am optimistic. I, I do have gratitude. We are going in the right direction. We will be hiring someone, uh, and, and, and that's going to be, you know, look for that. That's going to be really helpful for the movement. Um, but I am, I'm thankful. I'm thankful for everything that, that you all have done to make this possible. I, I want to talk today about incrementalism. And I want to do it because this is probably the, uh, the, the, the area of greatest friction that we have within our conversation. Um, I've, I'm asked every now and then, you know, who is it who opposes you or, or who is it who disagrees with you at strong towns? Um, and I, I think sometimes we're defined by, you know, our opposition, right? So the, the, you know, I think it's a logical question. Like if you're out here saying this, it seems very compelling. Um, who's calling BS on you, right? And my answer has been up until recently, you know, first of all, Nobody really. I mean, we haven't had a lot of like organized opposition or people saying, you know, you've got it wrong or you, you haven't figured this out. Um, there are some people who like, you know, I'm going to cling to my cul-de-sac until it falls apart. And, and I, you know, I, I'm not worried about that. I'm not trying to convince them. I think time, <laughs> I think time will, uh, you know, destroy their cul-de-sac for them. I mean, I, I don't, I don't feel like I need to overcome that argument. Like the wind is at my back. But from a structural standpoint, like who is it who um, feels threatened by our message in a sense? And that's been kind of an easy one to answer up to this point. I mean, I, I think the people who are vested in uh, maintaining the current system of infrastructure funding it, it, it very clearly are threatened by this. You know, and that's everyone from, you know, the economists who find it to be like the silver bullet solution to everything down to the American Society of Civil Engineers and their lobbying efforts to get trillions of dollars for this, to, uh, you know, the activists in different places who just want their piece of this, you know, pie. They want the pie expanded and they don't care what the cost is, uh, what the collateral damage is. They just want their piece of it. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a kind of a food chain of people who are vested in the current system, the current way of financing cities. And, and they have a kind of re reflexive reaction to our message that varies from, you know, I just don't want to hear it. Like, you know, put my fingers in my ears and go la, 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 la. Like, I, I don't, I'm not going to listen um, to like, I get you, but we live in the real world and I need this money for my bike lane or my transit project or whatever. So for, forget it, you know, I'll, I'll fund, I'll fund 50 miles of destructive road projects if I can get my, two miles of bike lane here because I, I really want the bike lane. And, you know, I, I get that. I get, I get, I get, I get that range of response and that range of action. And I actually don't consider anybody in that range, uh, even the American society of civil engineers really at the end of the day to be enemies in a sense, like opposition, like, you know, I say, uh, I say left and they say, right. Like I, I, I actually think that we have a lot of things that we could have common ground and, and agreement on. That being said, there's this other group uh, that's growing in intensity, and it's it's coming from within. It's not a it's not an outside group. It's coming from within, and I'm going to try to give it voice here today, 
and and try to show it deference and respect as a way to uh, you know have a have a conversation about this set of ideas that many of you in this audience hold. Let me try to express it in as as genuine a way as I can, and respectful way as I can, and and understand I'm I'm I always think that it's best to have. Uh, authentic voices when there's a disagreement, right? Like me, me. when you listen to Sean Hannity and he tells you what liberals think, or you listen to Rachel Maddow and she tells you what the conservatives think, um, th- those are not authentic voices, right? Those are, those are caricatures of the other side. Um, I'm going to try to, because I, I don't consider people who have this viewpoint enemies either, I'm going to try to give an authentic version here. Um, so let me try this. Chuck, uh, we really like strong towns, really like strong towns. Think you're on to something. Think you've got some great ideas. Think you've really figured out and nailed the problem. But don't you see with the scale of this problem that it is so big and it is so important and it intersects with all these other huge, important problems that we just can't cling to this backward notion of incrementalism. We just can't act incremental. We've got to take big steps. We face major problems. We face, you know, major disasters on multiple fronts. You're asking us to think and work incrementally. That's just not worthy of of the, the challenges we face. We have to take big, bold steps if we're going to address uh, the problems that this country, this world faces right now. And you have identified some of them that, that are keeping me up at night why can't you get on board with taking some big, bold steps? I'm going to take a sip of my energizing midnight grape uh, kickstart here. You think when it says uh, energizing midnight grape, that actually drinking it at midnight is a wise thing? It's 11 o'clock, so I'm not, I'm not quite to the midnight hour yet. So what do we do about this, um, you know, this, this thought that uh, we, you know, the, the problems are so huge, um, you know, that we have to act, you know, in a big way. We can't just, um, you know, act incrementally. I want to take a little divergence through where we're at today. And I'm going to give you the Chuck Marone version of, uh, of the suburban experiment, um, because I think it will help you understand my thinking. I look at the traditional development pattern, which you know, I, I first started to understand this in a deep way uh, through the Congress for the New Urbanism, and the idea that you know Andre Stuani and a bunch of his peers uh, went out and said, you know what, people used to build cities, pretty amazing. Uh, they kind of knew what they were doing. Let's go out with some tape measures and uh, some measuring sticks. And, 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 and some color palettes and, you know, our sketchbooks and actually try to figure out what these people were doing. Um, you know, let's, let's go out and, and figure out like, you know, what did they used to put in terms of the distance between the front of the porch and, and the street? Like, what was that? And did that vary from city to city? And, and why did it vary? And what were the width of the houses and, and why did they put them like that? Uh, how did they align things on the landscape in reference to the the sun and the direction of the winds? Like, you know, and why did they do this? And I, I first got introduced to this at CNU as kind of like a geeky way to do coding, right? I was working as a planner uh, for cities all over the state of Minnesota. I was very frustrated with Euclidean zoning. I mean, I... I I think everybody who becomes a planner and winds up working with cities has this phase where they think they can solve the world through zoning, right? Like just get the right zoning and there can be world peace and, uh, you know, Palestinians and Israelis would love each other if they just had the proper zoning. We could cure cancer if we just had the proper zoning. I mean, there, there, there does get to be like a religion about, you know, if we just had the right zoning, we can figure this out. I, I, I was kind of through, I, I was kind of in that phase, but towards the tail end of that phase for me, I had turned my back on Euclidean zoning. I just like, this is stupid. Like, th- this, is, this is asinine. This is like z- zoning for idiots, right? Um, I mean, the, the, the number of like incongruities with reality that you just run into on a daily basis 
with standard modern zoning is just overwhelming. It's overwhelming. I found it like oppressive to even work with because it was just so dumb. Um, so I, I, you know, I came up with like my own zoning code. Uh, and then I, you know, looking around kind of discovered um, form-based codes and and that led me to the CNU. And, and really the questions that I was asking at that point in my life, you know, why, why is this not working? What I'm doing and what is the alternative? CNU was the furthest down that path. I mean, they were like, uh, the green berets of trying to figure this stuff out, right? I mean, they were out there on the street, like I said, with the tape measures saying, let's document what's happening here. And then let's sit down in a room and debate, like, why did they do this? And, and what can we figure out? And what can we learn about it? In, in communing with them and spending time with the new urbanists, um, and I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm saying this as if I'm not one of them. I'm a new urbanist. I mean, I, I, I really like new urbanism and I, I really have gotten a lot out of it. Uh, in communing with them and learning from them, what I came to respect, and I don't know if this is really, I, I don't know if your standard new urbanist has this belief, um, but I am one of these like history people. Um, I, I came to respect kind of the spooky wisdom of the traditional development pattern. Um, and I'm going to reference a book here, uh, a book called The Lives of a Cell. It was uh, recommended to me by a college professor. And this book, The, the Lives of a Cell, it's, a very easy, it's, a, it's an easy read in that it's a small book. It's a simple book. It's easy to go through. But it's one of these where you'll read a chapter and then you'll just put it down and you'll spend a day with your brain grinding on it. Um, he basically... Uh, makes analogies uh, of microcellular biology to to development patterns and to living patterns, and and the way that uh, cells evolve and learn to the way we would build and design what I would call a human habitat. And I've started to try to. I mean, Lives of a Cell is a heavy book, heavy as in like intellectually heavy. Um, I've tried to simplify this down to people by talking about bees and beehives. You know, if, if, if you look at bees and beehives, we understand that the bee and the hive uh, evolve together. Um, they're mutually supportive. If you took bees and you put them into a, a, a different kind of thing, like you took the little parts of the honeycomb and spread them all out and connected them with uh, high-speed rail, or I don't know what the heck you'd do, but, uh, you know, you reconfigured it, um, you would lose like the essence of what it meant to be a beehive and a bee colony and have bee habitat. It, it would cease to work and cease to function, right? Um, there is an inner relationship between the habitat of the bee and the bee itself. They have essentially co-evolved. And I guess the, the big takeaway for me or the kind of the life-altering thing that, uh, that CNU helped me grasp my communing with the new urbanists helped me understand was that what we're really talking about here is human habitat, human habitat that evolved, co-evolved with humans. Uh, in my curbside chat, I talk about the thousands of years of trial and error experimentation um, that gave us, you know, villages and small little settlements and ultimately larger cities all of this happening before, you know, modernity, before uh, earth movers and steel and, you know, uh, all, all the things we do today to, to build things. If we look back at, for instance, Milan, um, the, the first European city I flew into uh, where I, I, you know, the pilot said, if you look out uh, the left side of the plane, you'll see Milan. And uh, I was sitting on the left side of the plane and I looked out the window and I thought, where, where is it? You know, this, this is a great European city. This is a, you know, one of the, the major cities of Europe. Where, where is it? And, uh, you know, being an American who had never been out of the country, flying into Europe, I, you know, you say Milan and I'm thinking New York. I'm thinking Chicago. I'm, I'm looking for skyscrapers, quite frankly. I mean, like, wh where is this city and uh, of course, Milan, I don't know what the, the maximum height of a building there is, but Milan doesn't have skyscrapers. It, 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 is, it is a major city in Europe. It is a gorgeous place. It has got tons of people. It's a very prosperous and successful city. It does not have skyscrapers. It was not built in an era when, when you had skyscrapers. 
Um, and I looked out on the where I don't see Milan. Well, there it is. It's right there. Um, you look at what gave us Milan and you go back, you know, thousands of years that it took to get to Milan. And what you really have is you have an approach to building that co-evolved with us. It, it was human habitat. And while there's anomalies around the world, I mean, I, I don't really get into this in the chat because I don't really have time, you know, to dwell on all the tiny nuances. It's part of giving lectures. You, you know, you, 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 you don't get the time that you would like. You know, there are nuances to this, but when you look at cities around the world, uh, that prior to the modernity and and i'm just gonna like draw uh, let's say steel and earth movers right um prior to that when you look at cities they're eerily similar eerily similar um and, and i'm gonna i'm gonna posit that you know the architecture is different and uh you know the building materials are different um and and there is nuance in the layout and design i mean we're not going to pretend that there isn't but basically, you lived in a city and you could walk to places. And, and if you took someone from any city in the world in, you know, 1800 or 1500 or 1200 or 408, you know, BC, and you drop them into a city and you said, you know, find a place to get food, find a place to, uh, you know, buy whatever, these human habitat is pretty, uh, you know, ordinary. I mean, we, we need certain things and those things are going to be within certain distance of each other and, and buildings are going to be arranged in certain ways and they're going to have certain attributes because it makes places safer and it makes places more social and it has all this, and I'm going to use the term again, spooky wisdom built into it. Um, this is wisdom and I I call it spooky wisdom because, uh, I'm kind of referring there to quantum mechanics, uh, you know, the, the idea in quantum mechanics, at least as it's, as it's developed today, is that we know these things work, but we don't really know why. Um, we write equations out of our understanding of quantum mechanics. We can test those equations. Um, they test out true. So clearly we're on to something, but we don't know why. We don't know why it works. We don't know why, you know, a particle uh, can be in two places until you observe it and then it's in one. Like, we don't get that. It's spooky. And, and what I'm suggesting is that the more I have studied and the more I have looked at human development patterns pre-modernity, the more I just find spooky wisdom, um, things that work, and I really can't explain or understand why. And, and I'll, I'll, I'll get into it a little bit. Like, I'll delve into it. And I'll be like, okay, I, I get this. But, you know, you look at the wide range of, uh, you know, of, 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 of social and physical issues that, that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, cultural issues, political issues. Um, I'm not suggesting that cities of the past didn't have this. They had this in spades, but they had it in a different way. They had um, different stresses and different things that forced them to, to work things out. In a sense, these were human habitats. They evolved with us. They were evolved to essentially optimize all the complex variables that goes into humanity. Uh, I, I'm often asked to explain the old and blighted block and the shiny and new. And for those of you that, that don't know what I'm talking about there, uh, years ago, I, I wrote this thing about Taco John's in, in my hometown and contrast that with another block that was two blocks away. And I use this in the curbside chat. So many, many, many of you have seen this. Uh, basically, the, the, the old and blighted block is this one-story pop-up shacks on the edge of town, 90 years old, neglected, run down, you know, looks like blight. It is blight. Um, and the Taco John's occupies the same amount of area, but it's brand new. It's got the nice sign. It's, you know, got a big parking lot. It looks, it looks well-kept because um, it's brand new. And I point out that, you know, the old and blighted block pays 79% more taxes than the shiny new. It's worth 79% more. And I get people who stand up and say, uh, Chuck, so, you know, this is just density, right? And I always push back on that. I'm like, no, it's it's not just density. There's something, there's something else there. And I'll get other people to say, well, what is it? What's the difference between these two? And it, it's fascinating because I fall back on, uh, I try to explain it. I try to explain it in terms that like 
they will grasp, that I can, I can understand the best I can. But I always kind of conclude with, this is spooky wisdom. Um, this is stuff that evolved uh, with humans in the past. And, you know, it's not one of those vestiges like the appendix, right? Like we built this, we co-evolved these habitats along with us. And, uh, you know, there's some spooky wisdom there. There's some, there's, there's some things that people living in that kind of a world knew and understood uh, on how to like optimize different variables. One of them being financial productivity, uh, you know, the ability of a place to sustain and maintain itself over time. Uh, you know, they had to do that or these places stopped working. They figured this out. They figured this out and they didn't figure it out by being smart, right? That, that's the, that, this is the, um, I think the key insight of evolution that, uh, you know, post-enlightenment people uh, grasp in a textbook but don't grasp in real life, right? What they grasp in a textbook is that uh, evolution is astoundingly powerful, because it is many, many iterations of failure. Uh, and, and you can equate failure to pain, suffering, uh, loss, you know, humiliation. Just, you know, go ahead and equate failure to all kinds of negative attributes. Evolution works because it has thousands, millions of iterations of failure to generate uh, the optimum success, right? And, you know, we get that when it goes to uh, fruit flies and, uh, and, you know, turtles and, and things. Uh, we often disrespect that or forget that when we think about humans and human habitat. Um, so this is what I get from the new urbanists. I get, I get this healthy respect of the wisdom embedded in our current, in our prior approach to building cities. And when you have this, uh, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use a word here that I use in the talks as well, uh, humility. And I don't mean it in a pious kind of way. I, I'm not asking you to be pious, uh, you know, to go out and, and I, you know, I'm a Catholic in a, in a good Catholic sense, you know, be humble uh, and pious to each other. No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm saying be humble in the idea that there is wisdom in this approach that you do not grasp. Um, there is something there that thousands of years of tinkering with this figured out that humans just knew to do because they just copied what they had seen other people do, right? They just, this is the way you build the same way, you know, bees don't have to be told, here's how you build a hive. They're just like copy the person next to them or the bee next to them, right? Like this is what we do. Um, this is how we build cities. And, and so, you know, there is this like spooky wisdom there and we should be humble in the face of that. Um, we should be humble in, in the face of evolutionary knowledge, you know, thousands of years of knowledge and wisdom embedded into, uh, into this. So when I look at, if you start with that as a premise and you start with that level of humility, when you look at what we have done in modernity, particularly what we did after World War II, um, you wind up just to be stunned by the hubris involved. Now, hubris is a strong word. Uh, when we think of hubris, we often think of, of someone who is arrogant and you know, uh, nonchalant, like d doesn't care about others. Uh, that's not how I'm trying to use the word hubris. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be very respectful of people who looked at cities as imperfect places because they were. And particularly when you get into the industrial age where you're taking the traditional city and you know all its problems and all its complications and all the tensions that go along with it. And, and you're you know, trying to solve, you, you ramp those up with factories and smokestacks and you know, cholera and what have you. And, and th these are, I'm not standing here and I'm not talking to you tonight pretending that these were great, perfect places. Like, I want to go back to the 1910 city. I'm not suggesting that in any way. But um, understand what we did. We took something that had evolved, co-evolved with us, that was, in a sense, stable, and did optimize a whole bunch of like complex human variables. And we said, we're going to solve this problem. We're going to solve this problem, and here's how we're going to do it. 
in North America, here's what we're going to do. We have all this land out on the edge. And so what we're going to do is we're going to run highways out there. Uh, we're going to run highways through the middle of our city. We're going to spread everybody out. We're going to give everybody their own little plot of land. And you know what? We're never going back into depression again because that stunk. That was really bad. We're not going to do that. So let's create a system that will grow and perpetuate this prosperity across an entire continent. Give everybody, and maybe not everybody today, but you know, in time, it'll trickle down to everybody. Uh, let's give everybody uh, you know, a more prosperous, more successful life. And I think, you know, Tomas Sedlacek, the, the Czech economist I like so much, uh, I think said this best. He said, you know, what we did uh, is we tried to solve the age-old problem, or we did solve, you know, for a while, the age-old problem of how do you split a loaf of bread between three hungry people? Well, the way we solved it is you, you create two new loaves of bread, right? Um, you know, and that's what growth does. And when we got through... Uh, the Depression, and we got through World War II, and uh, we looked back and we said, we're not doing that again, and we can fix the city. We can fix these problems, these problems that have plagued humanity for thousands of years. And I, 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 I think we could go into you know, a whole range of them. <laughs> you mean, imagine cities with sewage flowing through the streets. You know, imagine places like overrun with cholera. You can read the writings of Thomas Jefferson, who, you know, talked about the, the greatness of agrarian life and how America had all this space so we could be an agrarian nation with people living on farms because cities were so nasty and horrible. Uh, and, and in many ways, they were. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be like Pollyanna here and pretend like everything was wonderful. Let's look back with great nostalgia. Um, but what we did is we set out to just, we're going to eradicate these problems. And if, if we are honest with ourselves, there is something deeply admirable about that, right? Like, like we, we're, I'm not looking back at these people as villains. Um, you know, they were trying to do something heroic. Uh, they were trying to solve these problems. And so what they did is they went out and they did what we call the suburban experiment, right? Um, they changed the way we finance building. They changed the way uh, we build homes. They changed the way we subdivide land. They changed the way we finance things. They changed the way we insure things. They changed the way we get around. Um, they changed our transportation system. They changed our uh, governments and the way our governments function and our expectations of government. Um, all of this really to deal with this issue of how do you get... Uh, you know, uh, how do you split one loaf of bread between three hungry people, right? You grow. And by growing, you can solve all of these problems. You can solve all these problems. Obviously, we don't believe, and I don't believe, and, and at Strong Towns, we don't believe that, that this is a panacea, right? We have created for ourselves uh, a, a, a massive, massive problem in that we have bankrupted our cities. And, and I will quote Tomas Sedlacek again. Tomas Sedlacek describes this as, we sold uh, stability to buy growth. And we exchanged our stability for growth. And let me just get into the, uh, the traditional development pattern for an instance and try to crack in a tiny, tiny way that spooky wisdom. When you look at like a core downtown of a city and you look at the little box structures that are there, you understand that in that box, you can have retail and you can have office space and you can have residential and you can have residential high end and you can have residential low end and you can have rental units and you can have, you know, purchase units. There's all kinds of different ways to configure that box and to reconfigure it and reconfigure it and reconfigure it. And if we think about Milan and, and the, the, the hundreds and hundreds of years that some of those buildings have been there, we intuitively understand that they have gone through many, many, many iterations right? Of what they once were. When we look at the suburban experiment and you look at that big box store, or you look at that McDonald's drive-thru, or you look at that suburban ranch house, there's only one thing that that is, right? It is not adaptable. It is not flexible. Um, you know, times change, demands change, markets change. Those things are done, done, D done. 
And, 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 and understand when I say dumb, they have millions of dollars of pipe in the ground for them and millions of dollars of road and curb and sidewalk. They have all this massive public investment and they're not adaptable at all. Zero. They have zero adaptability. So when we look at the suburban experiment, uh, what we did is we pursued growth and in pursuing growth, we gave up stability. We gave up flexibility. We gave up adaptability. And our core insight here at Strong Towns, we gave up financial productivity. We were so uh, desirous of the growth and the growth solved so many problems for us. We needed it at all costs. We, we became like we need growth so badly um, that we're willing to trade uh, really our financial solvency for it. Um, you know, we're willing to do things that over the long run are bankrupting us. We're willing to get a dollar of growth today. We are willing to take on $10 of liability in the future. And those are just bad. Those are bad trades, right? Those are bad trades, but that's what our system does. And so when we get out to where we're at today and people say, well, Chuck, this problem is huge. It's, it's overwhelming. Like we can't act incrementally. Um, there's a part of me that like, I, I get that, right? Like I get it. I, I get what you're saying. This problem is huge. It is, it is. In fact, I use the word problem just there. I try not to do that anymore. Um, you know, cause problems have solutions. Predicaments have outcomes and, and we're really way beyond the problem stage. There's no solution to this. There are just outcomes, right? Um, we're just, we're, we are at the point of managing outcomes here. We're not in the solution phase. So when I hear people say this, like, Chuck, we, we can't work incrementally. Um, it, 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 it rubs me the wrong way. And it rubs me the wrong way because I agree that these problems are huge. I agree that they're enormous. But how in the world did we get here in the first place? We got here because we essentially thought we could solve all the little problems, right? We looked at all these little problems. And I, sometimes when we talk about the traditional city, I talk about the mother-in-law conundrum. Uh, I'm going to write this up someday because it, it's, it's, creep, it's crept into a lot of my lectures. I think it's a really helpful way to think about it. It's a, it's a simplified way to think about the problems of the traditional development pattern. Here's the mother-in-law conundrum. I love my mother-in-law. I don't want to live with her. I don't want to live with her. Um, I enjoy living with my wife and my children. Um, but if my mother-in-law came to live with us, even though she is a sweet, wonderful, beautiful, kind, generous person, um, I would not find that to be like the optimal outcome, right? Um, and, and the reason is very clear. I mean, she is a wonderful person, but I feel differently when she's around, right? Like, I don't feel like I can walk around in my, in my I don't walk around in my underwear in the house, but like, you know, walk around in my shorts or whatever. I, 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 I got to pick up after myself a little bit more. I have to have a little bit more decorum, right? When my mother-in-law is there, you know, just because she's my mother-in-law, you know, she's like a, uh, you know, a matriarch in a sense, you know, I, I, I don't want to disrespect her. There's a certain respect that goes along with it. And so it would be um, a little bit stifling to me uh, on a number of levels uh, to have my mother-in-law live in my house. And I think everybody can respect that, right? Like we like visitors to come, but we don't like them to stay, right? <laughs> um, here's the thing. What would happen if my mother-in-law did live with me? Like, what would life be like? I can tell you what, um, my kids would love it. Um, my kids would be better human beings if their mother-in-law was around to help raise them and, and be a, a guidance for them. I mean, she is an incredible role model. I mean, they, they, I've got two daughters. They would, they would benefit in a huge way from having their mother-in-law around. Um, my wife would benefit. You know, my wife is a very successful, accomplished person. Uh, she's a reporter. And, uh, you know, sometimes she has, uh, especially when I'm traveling, 
Um, she has a very difficult time because she will, you know, have a story she's got to chase or whatever, and uh, you know, kids to pick up and all this stuff. It's, it's it's balancing like a lot of things. And my mother-in-law helps out a lot right now. Imagine if she lived there. I mean, it would just be way easier helping out with meals, helping out with picking things up. You know, especially when I'm gone, uh, just helping out around the house. So it would be it would be a tremendous help to have my mother-in-law there. What about me? I have to say, if I'm honest with myself, that if my mother-in-law lived there, I would actually more than likely be a better person, right? I'd count to 10 more. Um, you know, I, I would probably be more, I, w- I would be more patient, uh, less quick to anger, less quick to get upset with people. Um, you know, I, I, some of the things that maybe were f- are frustrations now, I mean, I think natural frustrations of life. There would be other ones, sure, there'd be tensions, but a lot of the ones that we have today would be taken care of. In other words, when we look at the mother-in-law conundrum, at first it seems very, very easy, right? Like get the mother-in-law her own place, spread everybody out, let's live in different houses, we can drive, we're only 10 miles away from each other. Um, this all makes a lot of sense. And, and I think like our gut reaction as people trying to solve the mother-in-law conundrum is that, well, let, you know, we're prosperous enough now, everybody should just get their own house. Like there's no reason for us to be on top of each other. There's no reason for us to be up in each other's business. But you give up, and, and this is an allusion to the spooky wisdom again, uh, you give up the benefit of having your mother-in-law there, right? Like my kids are being raised in a way that kids have never been raised before until the last couple of generations. In, in all of human history, kids were always raised with their mother-in-law, right? <laughs> or, or some uh, matriarch, patriarch type of person uh, in the home you know, that was a generation above their parents, right? Like we all raised... Humans were always raised in this situation. They're not anymore. They're not anymore. They're, they're, they're not at all. And so you look and it's like, if I were going to solve this problem today, I would solve it in the way that was the most convenient for me right now immediately. Is that the best solution? Is that the optimum way to solve things? I, I don't know. I, the, my, my gut tells me no. My gut tells me we evolved in this way not because we were poor, not because we were peasants, not because we were dumb. I think quite the opposite. I think quite the opposite. So when I look at people today who say, Chuck, these problems are huge. We've got to think huge. And of course, let me tell you what thinking huge means. We need to, uh, you know, put in high-speed rail everywhere. We need to, uh, you know, completely rebuild this, uh, this whole area into a pedestrian mall. And we need to, uh, you know, force mixed use zoning in this area. We need to, uh, you know, in California, make every, uh, parcel within a mile of a transit stop, have the capacity to build whatever you want on it. Um, you, you look at all these massive, like one dimensional solutions to one dimensional problems. And I just, I, the the humility part of recognizing the tradition the spooky wisdom of the traditional development pattern just repels against that it just pushes back and it says why the heck do you think that you are so smart today now let me give the let me give the rebuttal to that real quick cuz there's an intellectual rebuttal to that and i'm going to call it the like running uh you know uh, trying to outrun the steamroller uh, kind of uh, rebuttal and it goes kind of like this, you know, and I'll, I'll give it to you in the climate change realm. Uh, climate change is going to destroy the planet. It's going to destroy humanity. It's going to, you know, have this runaway greenhouse effect. If we keep burning fossil fuels, this is not going to end well. But instead of stopping burning fossil fuels, instead of stopping driving, instead of stopping, you know, electric production or coal, what we need to do is just run hard. And we need to put billions, trillions, whatever it takes into alternative energy and alternative energy sources and figure this thing out. And if we can just stay like a few paces ahead of uh, this steamroller that's coming at us, by the time we get to facing this existential threat, we will have the wisdom and the technology and the understanding to actually go out and face it and fix it. And we'll be able to fix climate change and reverse climate change. And everybody will have a uh, you know, whatever powered vehicle that they ride that is environmentally benign and we'll be able to get to that technology, but we can't stop 
Today, we've got to have this like sprint to get there. And <laughs> here's the problem. I mean, I, I get that, right? Like that's a very like seductive kind of uh, mindset, right? And I get why we, especially we who enjoy the comforts of modernity and the ability to drive wherever we want and the ability to fly wherever we want. I mean, I, this is what I do for a living, right? The ability to go wherever we want and have things delivered to us. And what, like we, we value modernity. That kind of thinking is incredibly seductive because it's very comforting to us. It kind of insinuates that you really don't have to change or sacrifice or have anything be all that much different if we just keep going and just go maybe a little bit harder and faster, uh, we can get there and it'll be a utopia and it will work out well. What's the problem with that, of course? It, it, the problem is, is, is a binary outcome. Uh, it succeeds or it fails. Unlike the traditional development pattern, there's no hedge, right? You, you either succeed or you fail. And success maybe looks like utopia, but failure looks like hell. Failure looks really bad, really, really, really bad. You, you are essentially, when you ascribe to that notion, you're essentially ascribing to a massive humanity-wide, global-wide, not just humanity, because we, you know, we're impacting <laughs> all these other species and ecosystems. You're talking about a planetary-wide experiment that is a pass-fail. I'm not real keen on that. That's not the way my mind works. And, and I would posit to you um, that in some ways that is the way the human mind works, right? That's the way, you know, I, I, I see the seductiveness of that. Um, but if you look back at the civilizations uh, throughout human history who embraced that, uh, they got knocked down. On, they, they, the, the, a lot of them, the, uh, you know, the coin flip was tails, not heads. And uh, those societies went away, you know. They, 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 they weren't copied in that spooky wisdom. The spooky wisdom is spooky wisdom because it endured, right? I mean, that's the thing about evolution and in general. Like, if we could go back and look at all the variations and permutations that, that didn't work out, some of them certainly were brilliant and some of them certainly, like, made a lot of sense. And maybe they even endured for hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years before they died out. But they did, they died out. They went away. They went away. Um, it's a big, huge experiment. It's a big, huge, like, pass-fail experiment. So when you come to me and you say, this problem's so huge, we can't afford to work incrementally, we have to do huge, massive things, to me, it's like you're not learning from the past mistakes. You're not understanding how we got here. You are, in a sense, the person with the same mentality who in the 1920s said, you know what? Uh, look at all these problems. We got the mother-in-law problem. We got you know all these other related social tensions that we're dealing with. We got cholera. We got disease. We got you know all this stuff. And 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 sure, we could work incrementally to try to fix it. We could bring in sewer pipes in this neighborhood and get them running. You know, make this work. We could build a, a little accessory apartment in the back for mother-in-law, and you know, do we could we could do those things. But my gosh, the, the problems are so huge. We could think of all the good we could create if we just went out and built highways all over the place and gave people automobiles and financed their homes for them and spread them out over the landscape, wouldn't life be great? That's what they thought. That you, you are the same person. I mean, let me make this less personal. We are the same people as they were. We have the same embedded human flaws in our thinking as they do. And we find, you know, uh, you know, um, we find people like Elon Musk to be heroic, right? Because they, you know, congestion, let's just build a tunnel. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, you know, energy problems, let's just have green roofs everywhere. And, and, and we look at this and we're like, yeah, hell yeah. Like this guy's solving problems. I'm, I'm, I'm with him. Like that, that's like heroic to us. I'll tell you what's heroic to me. Heroic to me is denying that easy path. Heroic to me is actually denying the notion that somehow I am smarter than thousands of years of spooky wisdom. 
that 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 somehow I, in, in my like pathetic puniness today, can grasp all the complexities of humanity, all the complexities of of human habitat and this vast expanse of of life, that I can somehow just grasp it and say, yeah, I got the solution. It's a it's a high speed rail line between here and here, or it's solar panels on your roof, or it's the you know like I I get it. I know what to do. Here's the five things we need to do. That is heroic to me is the ability to deny that and to acknowledge that you don't know. You don't know the answer. You don't know. And, and history is full of people who thought they knew who didn't. You don't know. You don't know. So this gets to the question. What do you do when you don't know the answer? And, and, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to point this out right now. Um, it's not enough. And, and, and I'm going to, I love my new urbanist friends. Uh, I'm going to say this, and, and, and this is not meant to, uh, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's a deep well of intellect with the new urbanism, but there's a few flaws in, in some of the things that uh, they occasionally bring forward. And I, I think one is the obsession with building form. Um, and my good friend, Ian Rasmussen, he's uh, one of our board, uh, on, our, on our board of directors here at Strong Towns. Uh, I met him through the CNU Next Gen, and he was the very first one to point this out to me. Um, you know, he said, they're, they're all obsessed over building form. They think you just get the building form right, and, and everything works from there. And it's not true. I mean, look at Baltimore. You know, how do you explain, uh, you know, Philadelphia? Because uh, you go to these neighborhoods in Philadelphia, or you go to the neighborhoods in Baltimore, they have gorgeous form. I mean, just astounding form, something else is wrong. It's, it's not just building form, right? So, you know, you say, uh, you look back and say, okay, what we are not going to do is recreate the traditional city. Like, you know, Strong Towns is not about uh, bringing back 1920s America. Like, we, we, we're not going to do that. That's not po- that's a not possible. B not practical, and, and C I don't think that solves our problems, right? If if we could like magically go back to 1920s, I I, I don't think that anything is better than what it is today. Like I don't think that works. Here's to me what I think will get us to it, it is not the solution, but what will get us to uh, a way of managing these outcomes that that has the greatest opportunity to benefit people and and to create prosperity and to create like stability again. And that is to, you know, work incrementally across a broad area to try many little things. And, and, And I think this is where the people who criticize the incrementalism approach just fall short. They equate incremental with small. Chuck, we got to think big. Why are you thinking small? And what they're not grasping is that, you know, if, if you take a, 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 a thousand ton rock and try to lift it, it's a thousand tons. You will never, ever lift it. If you take a thousand ton rock and you break it into a million pieces, you can shovel full at a time, move that rock wherever you want, right? What I'm talking about is not, you know, is still a thousand tons. I'm just talking about going about it a very different way, a, a very different way. So it's not a matter of scale, right? It's a matter of trying different things, figuring out what works, and, and iterating that. Nassim Taleb, uh, our patron saint of Strong Towns Thinking, uh, has said the way that you approach uncertainty is you probe it incrementally. The way you deal with uncertainty is you probe incrementally. You, you try little things. These are complex systems. We don't know how they're going to react. We don't know how they're going to work. And, and, and the reason I made the, the statement about CNU and the building form and all that, it's not just a matter of like putting back traditional cities and then it will work. We have been, you know, 70, 80 years in this new experiment, this new way of building. We have, we have reshaped an entire continent around a new set of notions that didn't work. And now we're in this brand new place. Our starting conditions today 
are not Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, right? They're not the fall of the Roman Empire. Uh, they're not even like early 1900s America. Our starting conditions today is 2018. Cities that are spread out, insolvent, and broke. People who are fragile, uh, have negative net worths, and are dependent on continued growth. Uh, you know, systems and businesses that are non-localized, that are part of this uh, Ponzi scheme of finance, that are themselves incredibly, incredibly fragile uh, in, in, in a place with lots and lots of volatility. This is, these are our starting conditions. If you're standing there saying you know the solution, you are an idiot. You are a fool. And, and you're either, you know, a charlatan fooling others or you're fooling yourself, Right. This is a massive problem beyond any of our capacity to understand it. And what we need to do is try a million things at the local level. We need to try things at the block level. And we need to figure out what makes things better. And then we need to scale that incrementally, right? I, I tell you, I, I, I tell cities like, you know, where do we start, Chuck? Where do we start? Um, I'll tell you what, well, like the easiest one is go plant street trees, you know, it, it seems like so beneath us, right? What, what do you, Chuck, we have these massive problems. What do you mean go plant street trees? Um, go plant street trees. Go to your neighborhoods, your core neighborhoods in town and plant street trees. Like, I, you know, is it going to be like a panacea? Will it work? Will it create prosperity everywhere? No, no. But there's, it doesn't cost hardly anything. And there's very little downside to it. And really, when you look around at neighborhoods that are really successful, they all have great street trees. So like, what the heck? You know, th this is not going to cost you anything. Just go try it for crying out loud. Don't stop there. I'm not saying like that's the only thing you do, but go do that first. I mean, go get it done. Where are people struggling to walk? Why are they struggling to walk there? Do they need crosswalks? Do they need redesigned streets? Do, you know, what do they need to help them get from the neighborhood two blocks of the downtown? Like, what what is keeping that from happening? What's keeping that business downtown, uh, that building, from being reused? Like, let's figure that out. Let's let's iterate. Let's 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 you know incrementally try some different things and figure out what works, and then take the knowledge that we learn and try to use that in other places, right? We are trying to figure things out now. Anyone who says that this is an approach unworthy of the problems in front of us are not grasping what I'm talking about. I am not talking about, you know, having the government come in and fund some big, huge thing uh, that will be a silver bullet catalyst for everything else. I'm talking about everybody listening to this podcast right now and your neighbors and your neighbor's neighbors and a million people across this country rolling up their sleeves and doing something, whatever you can do to make things a little bit better in your place. That's a strong town's approach. That's an incremental approach. That's iterating. And I'm telling you, first of all, that's the only way we get to stability. That's the only way we get to prosperity. That is the only way we're going to figure things out. Is it going to be perfect? No. Is there going to be a lot of failure? Absolutely, there's going to be a lot of failure. Hopefully, the failures will be small. They will not be painful. They'll not be terminal, right? Uh, you know, there'll be things we can learn from. But there's going to be failure. Yeah. Let's get out and try it. Let's get out and try things. Let's get out and iterate. Let's not sit, you know, back and, 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 and hope that, you know, if we can just get the right people elected, they can overcome the opposition and get some huge grand thing done. Or if we can just get the right, like three policies in place, it will fix all this. And we can just go out and, and make this grand thing and it will make it all work and, and build the momentum for, you know, a great future. Let's not pretend we can outrun the steamroller, right? It's time to get to work. It's time to get to work. It's time to start taking seriously that we have the power ourselves to actually make some positive change. And it's time to, first of all, humble ourselves to respect that spooky wisdom and how that spooky wisdom is created. And then to not make the charlatans our heroes, to not make the people with the grand solution, the people who think they can solve everything, not make them into our heroes, but make the 
people out there who are denying that our heroes. Make the people who are out there uh, rolling up their sleeves and, and doing the little things. Make them our heroes. I'll tell you, two of my heroes today, just, you know, I have, I have many people that I've met that are really inspiring. But I'll tell you, two of my heroes, Jason Roberts with The Better Block is a hero to me. I, I have this guy on a pedestal. Uh, Mike Lydon with the Street Plants Collaborative, same thing. I have this guy on a pedestal. And you know what they do? They do tiny little things over and over and over. They iterate and they teach people how to iterate and they teach people how to look at hidden wealth and beauty in the small little things that we all overlook. They have opened my eyes to things that I've, 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 I've learned so much from the two of them and their humility to go out and see the potential in a thousand small steps. Those are the kind of people that we need to put on a pedestal. And it, here's, the, here's, the, here's the amazing thing. You know, Jason is a fantastic person. Mike is a, is a beautiful guy. You have these people in your community. Everybody listening here, and maybe it's you, right? Maybe it's you. And let's put you on a pedestal. Like, I, 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 wanna, I wanna promote your ideas. But, but all of you have these people in your community who are ready to do this stuff who want to get out there, who are maybe doing it today and just not getting the support that they need, right? These kind of people are everywhere. Let's make them our heroes. If we do that, it's not thinking small, it's thinking huge. We can change this country, we can change the world, we can start to attack some of these problems and build strong towns that are healthy, stable, prosperous, that's the whole thing. That's what we're doing. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Seriously, get out there and do what you can to build strong towns. Take care. Taking risk is a necessity to becoming rich. It's also a necessity to go bankrupt. Bill, 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 Bill. That's the story. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Just to echo what you said, there are no silver bullet solutions. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Who made this city? The window is not always open, but if nobody's pushing, then once the window opens, there'll be no chance to go through. I like you. I like your vision of the, of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit. Agenda 21. Yeah.